Chapter Thirteen. The New Religion. Vaza never paid particular attention to time. He cared about as much for the calendar as he did for maps. His legs didn't need to know which direction they were carrying him to carry out their task, and he never needed to know what day it was to do the things he needed to do that day. He knew, vaguely, to go north when the hot days began increasing, and to head south when the cold ones came at last. Likewise, he knew to sleep in the night and get up in the morn. It was only because of Corey, who was quite the opposite in every respect, that he knew they had been with Lord Thoto for about six weeks. Since their encounter with Carthen, Amir had all but avoided him. Corey, however, she accompanied almost every day. She went into town with him, watched his trades and negotiations, and engaged in bartering of her own. One night. A few cups deep into some wine, Corey had shared with Vazlo how they began to play a little game with prospective buyers. When the other courser or shop owner would inevitably start driving the prices too far down, Corey would begin to openly lament that he wouldn't be able to afford that medicine his daughter needed. Then, on cue, Amir would stumble feebly from the wagon, coughing, with a blanket wrapped around her, right there in front of the other trader. Corey would explain that they just didn't have the money, that it wasn't a good day in the trader's square, and she needed to hold on a little longer. Invariably, their victim would relent and agree to the original price. Amir would go to give them a hug, and the person would retreat, unsure of what kind of illness she might carry. Thus, they would escape any further inspection or inquiry. Vazlo, of course, expressed his dislike of such deception, but Corey, laughingly. Assured him it was common craft in the world of courses. Corey and Vaslo had taken up the habit of private late afternoon sparring in the training yard. During short breaks, the courser would catch him up on the affairs of the city, the feelings of the citizens, rumors, gossip, whispers, and of course how Amir was doing. Vaslo, for his part, would take the opportunity to correct footwork and grip transitions. Or to instruct in the proper use of feints or the redirection of force, as always, Corey Rush was a quick study. In just the two weeks they had been doing it, his skills had improved at an impressive rate. This afternoon, Corey's performance was lackluster. Vazlo pulled away and held up his gloved hand in a gesture to stop. "What? Did I mess up the pivot again?" Corey asked, taking hard breaths. Vazlo shook his head. You're somewhere else. It's like the man I spied yesterday and the one before me now are two different people. Did you get injured? Be honest. Training on an injury is how a busted ankle becomes a lifelong limp. Take it from me. He rubbed his right hip a little bit, as if to accentuate the point. Ah. Corey lowered his eyes and put his wooden weapon down into the dust of the yard. It's a,、uh, well. Out with it. It's not an injury. Well, not of the physical variety, anyways. How should I put it? The courser's eyes scanned for a bench, and when he found one, he motioned for Vaslo to follow him. What's going on? Vaslo asked as he sat. Corey might have the gift of gab, but generally, the duelist always found him to be sincere and free of idle worries. When something was bothering him, it was usually significant. It's Amia," Corey admitted. "Like I told you, she's been accompanying me on my daily trade outings. 
She's got a good mind on her, you know. Picked the whole thing up like she was born to it. I know she's been avoiding you. And like you suggested. Probably because she didn't want to talk with you about her bruises. Well, this morning she had a new pair. One on her arm and one on her lower leg. And I couldn't take it anymore. I pressed her on it. Vaslo unknowingly clenched his hands into fists and felt his blood start to heat up. And? What did she say? I'm struggling with whether to tell you. It's a delicate situation. Who? Vaslo demanded, more loudly than he intended. A few of the other guards, training with wooden weapons on the other end of the yard, glanced over briefly before returning to their own swordplay. That's exactly what I mean, Corey whispered sharply. Keep your voice down. Vaslo lowered his voice, but was still seething. Give me a name. It's not that simple, Vaslo, damn it. Corey sat back and ran his hands over his face, letting out a long sigh. You have to agree to listen to everything I say, and not just storm off as soon as you hear a name. The famous duelist took in a deep breath and let it out slowly. It was unlike him to get so worked up, but he found when it came to Amia, he couldn't help it. With some effort, he relaxed his shoulders and put his hands in his lap. I'll listen. The bruises are from the Marshal of the Guard, Sir Alden. Vaslo visibly tensed again, but Corey put a hand on his shoulder, reminding him to listen. Sir Maxon Alden is the captain who directly oversees Armia's guards. They guard her door, they keep watch on her during the day so long as she doesn't escape them, and they escort her for any official summons. He has close ties to her family, but more importantly, he has the absolute favor of the land baron. The Alden family is old, and owes total allegiance to the Thotos, even before they became the land barons of the Riverlands. Their two families are tied together by marriage, blood, and a lengthy history. When one takes a step forward in the world, so does the other. Vaslo took a breath. Even so, if someone were to make his abuses known, surely the land baron would do the right thing and at least place a different captain in charge. Well, it turns out someone tried to do just that, a few weeks before we got here, Corey said grimly. One of her regular guards realized what was going on when they were dismissed in the late evenings by their captain, and tried to report it. He was replaced for his regular duties the next day, and no one saw him again until his brother pulled him down from one of those poles where the corpses were hung. Shit. Vaslo spit into the sand between his feet and grit his teeth. It seems Captain Bezrin was wrong about him then. He is a monster. Has he... Has he? He has not raped her, Corey said certainly. As to why, I think those reasons probably go over our young Amia's head. Bright as she is, she is still young, and a virgin. She is from a noble house, and no doubt, her virginity would be assessed at time of marriage. Lord thought it would lose face, irreparably, if her virginity was not found intact at that time. She has been in his protection, after all and supposedly under the watchful and protective gaze of his guard. That is my guess, anyways. What does he do, exactly? Vaslo asked. According to her, he comes to her room very late at night, and, admittedly, only on rare occasion. 
He is always very drunk, and can usually barely hold himself up. He grabs at her a bit, tries to get a little handsy, and then she manages to kick him off her. She promises he must have more bruises than she does. Mostly, he says inappropriate things, especially to a young lady. I'm surprised she has not tried to outright escape, or find some way to send word to her lady mother, Vaslo said. Corey shrugged. She seems to believe that when her red comes, her mother will choose a suitable husband for her, at which point she will leave the estate and live with him. As her serving maid apparently says, that time is close. I think her feeling is she would rather fan the advances off just a little longer, and then leave without causing anyone else harm on her behalf. Admirable, Vaslo admitted. Dangerous. Admirable things often are. Corey scanned the yard and made sure no one had come any closer to where they sat. I have not been able to spend much time around the land, Baron. How do you measure the man? Taking in this new information shed some further light on a few things Voslo had seen himself. He is a selfish man, and a glutton. He seems to consider himself wise in some fashion, and even a woman's man. Thinking back now, there was something, last week. You remember that large group of visitors we had? I wasn't able to attend the dinner, but yes, I remember the commotion. Vaslo continued. Well, that evening, during the music and whatnot, I remember that Thoto grabbed one of the women by the thigh and squeezed. She had come with the visiting family, some wealthy people from nearby, but I don't know what position she held. She may well have just been a servant. Either way, she went white as a lily like she knew what that meant. Later, I noticed that a member of the guard approached her, whispered something to her, and then escorted her out of the feast hall. It wasn't long after that the land baron excused himself and disappeared somewhere. I didn't see either of them the rest of the night, to my recollection. It sounds like the land baron and the marshal may have some similar... tendencies, Corey suggested. Then the disappearance of the guard who tried to report Alden may not have been Alden's doing alone. A disturbing thought, Corey said. Agreed. Vaslo sat back and looked up at the darkening sky of early evening. What do we do then? I'm still trying to puzzle that out, Corey admitted. There are a lot of moving pieces. I am very nearly done with the trade obligations I had to Lord Braden. He seemed an honourable man and I want to honor the trust he gave me with his merchandise. In two or three days I will send a rider back to him with his part of the proceeds, and then I will be done with my business in Ashgarden, as far as I am concerned. I am happy to leave as soon as possible, but we will need to think of something for Amir first. I will not leave her here, Vaslo said. I will put my mind to it, Corey assured him. There may be some way to smuggle her out. Just need to get through the inspectors that the land baron has set up. They search every wagon in and out. The planning is in your hands, Vaslo agreed. In the meanwhile, I will try to keep an eye on the young girl. Hopefully we can leave with her before something more dramatic happens. And what do we do with her once we've escaped? Corey whispered. Take her to her mother's. We were going west anyways. Don't you think Lady Valmartani might have some questions as to how we wound up with her daughter? Vaslo laughed a little. She's a mischievous little thing. Something tells me her mother won't be that surprised. Just then, a horn rang out from an overlook by the barracks to signal the beginning of dinner. 
It was the message to the guards to be at their ready and return to their places, and to the guests to prepare and present themselves. The tall servant Lindell had the misfortune of having to blow it loudly in many corners of the estate, but only on the evenings that the land baron himself would be present. If Lord Thoto is going to be in attendance tonight, we should probably both be as well, Vazda grunted in his usual fashion, as he got back up to his feet and rubbed his right thigh. I am supposed to be guarding the bastard after all, though I hardly know where he is most of the time. Heeding the horn, the feast hall was particularly bustling tonight. Nearly every seat at every table was filled. Along the eastern wall were tables of nobles, sirs and ladies each, and their squires or pages, filling other tables as they could find them with the captains, sergeants, and colonels of the guard, and even a few people from the Grand Duke's retinue, though the Duke himself had not visited in the time they had been there. A series of ewes were laying out fruits, berries, crushed walnuts, and roasted duck on wide platters when Armia poked her head between Cory and Voslo. Can I sit with you two? I heard one of you is a famous duelist. That'll be me, Corey assured her. There was more than enough room on the long bench for him to make space, so he shifted a little to his right, and Armia sat between them. In general, the other visitors and members of the estate tended to give them a wide berth. She gave the courser a sceptical look. You can't be Voslo Stepman. Everyone knows he's nine feet tall and replaced the fingers of his left hand with daggers. You have perfectly normal fingers. Vaslo poked her in the side with his elbow. All right, all right. Cut it out, you two. Still, he was glad to see her. Too many people tonight. It smells. Amia plugged her nose, then pulled the roasted duck closer to her on the table and took an exaggerated breath over it. That might be us, Vaslo admitted. Gory and I came here straight from the training yard. Do you know why there are so many people here tonight, Amia? Cory asked. She motioned to her dress, which was fine, forest green cloth with white silken linings. The stewardess sent me this and told me I had to look presentable, as there would be an emissary from Pathard present this evening. All this, over an emissary from Pathard? Vazda raised an eyebrow. Amir was right. The voice was Captain Bezrin's this time. Seeing that there was plenty of space left at Vazda and Cory's table, he let himself take a seat across from them. You really do just walk around with your head in the clouds? Vazla shrugged. I'm good enough at doing what I need to be good at. I'll leave complicated things to complicated people. Bezzy! Amir lit up. You're not sitting with your fellows? Cory asked, and nodded his head towards the tables where most of the other guardsmen sat. Good enough men, most of them, but I see them all day long. The captain answered in his usual tired voice. I had not seen our young Lady Valmartani around much as of late, and thought I might impose upon the pleasure. Amir giggled, and her cheeks reddened a little. Impose away, my good captain. Vazdo cleared his throat. So, why is an emissary from Parthard such a big deal? You'd think the Lord Steward was coming, by the look of this crowd. Well, in a sense, that wouldn't be too far off the mark. The captain answered. The Iran of Pathad, Ederon Kushara, rules his state more like a king than a governor. The crown gives him a wide range of autonomy, probably more than any other state receives except perhaps Helmond. Lord Ederon has a personal standing army that could rival Belmar's, and Belmar knows it. Peace in the Concordant is largely kept by keeping Pathad happy enough to remain in it.
Parthians don't like outsiders much, and it is rare for them to send an envoy to any other lords, though they sometimes do as a matter of routine courtesy. I would imagine, given the lack of help from the throne, that our land baron is hoping to ply the emissary with sweet words and, somehow, secure some support from the Iran. The riotous numbers are increasing, and we are beginning to see some desertion within our own guard. The situation grows grim, then, Corey said. There is a sense of despair, to say the least, Bezrin said quietly. Echoing that notion, there was a subtle tension at the table. Vaslo knew what the captain had been doing for Carthine, and he guessed the captain knew that. Vaslo also now knew who had been hurting Armia, and he guessed that she knew that too. Despite sitting right next to him, she had still not addressed him directly. At that moment, Vaslo wasn't sure if he had ever known two people's secrets at the same time. He wondered, passingly, if that was normal once you got to know people. Amir broke the brief silence. You did forget something, Captain. And what might that be, my world-wise young lady? He teased. Seeing a moment to shine, she straightened herself up and took on a knowing voice. Not that everything you said isn't correct, for it was. There is an underlying pettiness to things as well, however. The lawns west of the Orlac and the sand path look down on those east of it, and the opposite is also true. Us westerners perceive those further east to be superstitious, excessive in manner, and too free of body and speech. Those in the eastern parts of the Concordant tend to view us over here as being cold and overly cynical, prudish, and far too conservative in the pleasures of life. Each side believes themselves to be correct, and the others to be in folly. Thus, whenever a chance arises to impress or outdo one another, we tend to seize it. Vaslo rubbed his thin, patchy grey hair. Sometimes it is a wonder that this concordant even works. It is always a wonder that this concordant works, the captain corrected. Corey leaned in. At the end of the day, the two hands of the king keep everything in order. All ten of them command considerable numbers of men, and they are chosen for their merit and cunning, not for their blood. Vazo didn't know much about the politics of the realm, but he knew the basic structure of the government, if only by virtue of his mother's schooling when he was a young boy. The two hands, as they were often called, consisted of ten members. These were the nine regents to the nine states, plus the Justicar. The regents were the king's personal liaisons to the governors, and their job was to ensure that each governor was suitably enforcing the king's law in their state. They could order censures and issue punishments on the governors and nobles if they found them lacking in their duty to the crown and the concordant. The tenth member, the Justicar, was tasked with the all-important duty of enforcing the Book of Proofs and keeping the High King's original vision for an ordered world. He commanded a troop of highly trained fighters called Confessors, who, in addition to warfare and subterfuge, were trained in the brutal art of interrogation. The Justicar himself, Lord Sedmund Passaf, also served as the royal judge. Captain Bezrin motioned for a servant to bring wine, and she poured a cup for everyone at the table. The High King was a wise man. Ancient lines of regional rulers, newly ordered into governors bound by the concordant and ruling by bloodline. A new circle of administrative rulers over them, to ensure they keep the faith and remain true to their ancestors' agreements. 
all of them bound together by a mutual self-interest to preserve their borders against slavers, raiders, and the barbarians of the Darklands. Cory lifted his cap. Then let us toast the High King Eden Belrays, who was a rare combination of wise and powerful. The captain stood and lifted his cap, then loudly shouted, To the High King Eden Belrays! It was one of those toasts that one merely needed to shout loudly, and a myriad of responses were guaranteed to follow. To the High King! And To the Belrays Dynasty! rang out variously, accompanied sometimes by To King Darren! Tellingly, no one mentioned the Lord Steward. Almost as soon as everyone was done yelling out their preferred rendition of the toast, Lindell blew the dinner horn and gathered everyone's attention to himself. That was when people began to notice that a few foreign-looking individuals had gathered near one of the doors, wearing colourful clothing and surrounding a figure in a hooded grey robe. My Lord of Ashgarden, and fellow sirs and ladies of the court, May I introduce the emissaries of Pathad on behalf of the Iran, Idaran Kushara. The robed man made a deep bow, but those around him made no move at all. They stood like sentinels, their stone-like faces in stark contrast to the colourful oranges, blues, and purples of their layered clothes. Lindell continued in his best announcer's voice. You have the good honour of meeting Lord Ian Thotto, Land Baron of the Riverlands, Lord of Ashgarden, and by the grace of our king, protector of the Iron Road and its merchants. A few disgruntled remarks about Parthians and the need for respect could be heard, but they were largely muffled by a light applause from the attendees, welcoming their guests. Lord Thotto wiped some wine and grease from his face, then bellowed out, Come forward now, come on. What news from your Iran? It has been many years since I've last seen him myself. Is he well? And you have a beautiful Irani. How does she fare? Come, share my table. He gestured towards a well-carved wooden table adjacent to his own, with ornate quartz inlays, and legs carved at the bottom to resemble the feet of a bear. A blue cloth with gold trim was laid over it, embroidered with small golden bears, and on that cloth, wide plates of meats, breads, and fruits. If Lord Thoda was inviting, Sir Alden was wary. The older Marshal of the Guard had one hand firmly gripping the handle of his sword, and his eyes were set like two small fires on their guests. I believe that is my cue as well, Captain Besrin said to his table-mates, before leaving them and quickly joining Sir Alden at the side of their master. They have such colourful clothing, Amir remarked. She frowned down at her own green dress, which, while pretty, was very, very green. They are masters of pigmentation in the East, Corey explained. Sulphur springs, which are unheard of in the rest of the country, spit out marvellous hues from the earth. They have learned to harness these resources, in connection to strides in our knowledge of chemistry, to bring about the very best in colour. No courser travels east of the sand path without trying to acquire some Parthian or Janin linens. The robed man walked to an open space that was between most of the tables of guests and the land baron himself. The place where Aeon Thoto sat was slightly elevated by a few steps over the rest of the room, and the Parthian helped himself to the first of them, so that he could be more easily seen by the feast hall. He pulled back his grey hood and surveyed the room around him. To everyone's surprise, he was very visibly not Parthian at all. He had light skin, instead of the tanned tones of the eastern peoples. 
His hair was black and curly, but instead of being long as was common in the southern reach, it was trimmed to rest at about his shoulders. Icy blue eyes darted out from behind those curls, and he ran his fingers through his hair to push it back out of the way. The land baron immediately noticed the discrepancy. Pardon my saying so, but you do not look Parthian. No, that would be a strange thing, as no one where I come from looks Parthian at all, the young man explained. By his voice and his complexion, Vazdo guessed him to be in his mid-twenties at most. These men are, though, as you can see, from Diedvin, actually, that magical little town where Pathad, Janu, and the border of the Darklands all converge. I am sorry to report that none of us, however, are from the Iran. Still, if I see him, I will be sure to tell him that you find his wife beautiful. At a sharp glance from Sir Alden, a side door was opened into the banquet hall, and a dozen guards walked in armed and armoured. Those who were already in the room, some twenty, stood up in alert, waiting for instruction. Lord Thoto motioned for them to stay still, and not act quite yet. You are a stupid man, the land baron belched unapologetically. What is your name? I would like to know how to refer to you once you are my prisoner, awaiting your trial for this disrespect. Me? Stupid. The young man gasped dramatically. I beg you, my lord. Please, do not tell my mother. Should you ever find yourself in the frozen wastes of Wolfsong's North, she would be heartbroken to hear it. And if she still lives, I doubt her tender age could tolerate the upset. No one lives in Wolfsong's North, Sir Alden said, venom in his voice, and clearly tired of this charade already. Sir Maxon Alden, their guest said, still pretending astonishment. Then I beg you too. If you ever find yourself in the frozen wastes of Wolfsong's North, find some pity in your heart and please do not tell my mother that no one lives there. She always had a shaky mind, my poor mother, and I'm half afraid she would believe you. Vaslo put his hand on the hilt of his father's sword. Diedvin, he whispered to Armia and Cori. Sound familiar? The Lion of Diedvin, Cori said slowly. They are with him then. They are certainly not from the Oran, Amir agreed. Sir Alden drew his sword, though he was much too far away to use it. Knowing my name means nothing. Our lord asked yours. The man offered an exaggerated bow. I am Trinist Ekvar Karkasi, at your service, and truly, my lord, here for your service, your service, and for the help of the soul of every person here with us. Sir Alden was red in the face by now. Heretic! he shouted, and looked to his guards. Apprehend this man! The Parthian men surrounding Trinist drew their curved scimitars and formed a protective circle around him. Trinist laughed and held his hands up in the air, as though surrendering. Then, with his right hand, he pointed up to the rafters of the feast hall. High above them all were two crouched men with bows drawn and arrows set on the seat of Aenthoto. Halt! Captain Besrin shouted. Sir Alden had not seen the gesture, but when he turned to reprimand the captain, his eyes were directed to the rafters above them. Halt! Sir Alden enjoined. The land baron himself was now acutely aware of the situation. His eyes were set like a hawk on the two bowmen above him, with their sharp arrows glinting in the torchlight of the room. Gentlemen, gentlemen, Trinist said, pleadingly. There is no need for anyone to die here tonight. I promise. I am a reasonable man, 
Give me five minutes on the stage, and I will surrender myself and my men happily into your custody. The land baron will remain without holes, no guards will die, and I will get to say my piece. Is that acceptable, or should we ruin all this blue tablecloth with some red? It was clear that neither the captain nor Sir Alden knew precisely what to do. One wrong move, and their lord himself could perish. It was Aeon Thoto who cleared his throat and spoke. You will turn yourself into me? he asked sceptically. What proof was there that you will not try to murder me, here in my own estate, regardless of what I let you do? If I sick the guards on you, well, maybe I die. But surely you and some of yours do as well. Rather, surely all of you do. My good land baron, Trenist sounded shocked. What reason have I ever given you to believe I am not a man of my word? We've only just met. Don't you know that the guest receives the privilege of honor? Let me prove myself. Hold your guards at bay, just for a few minutes, and then you will have us all anyways. Send us to the gallows if you'd like. Better yet, march us off to Belmar for the executioner's block. I've always wanted to see the capital, after all. Madness, my lord, Sir Alden grunted. The captain beside him stayed silent, his eyes fixed on the archers above. Lord Thodo held an agitated hand up to silence his marshal. I intend to end the night with roasted pork in my belly, Sir Alden, not arrows. He looked down at their guest. Say what you will say, and then hand yourself over, and none will die. Trinist looked overjoyed at the agreement, and excitedly turned so that he could see everyone else in the room as well. Sirs and ladies of the Riverlands and their adjoining estates, I apologize deeply, and sincerely, for the need of some subterfuge. I am sent as an emissary, but not from any lord. I am sent from the lord, the one who rules over us all. He is already assumed, the Adkan, the Kubkar, or as you call him here in the Concordant, the Lion. He is the father of humanity, the architect of hope, and the clear road that leads to safety and redemption. I am here on his behalf this evening to invite all of you to hear the Lion's roar, and then take refuge. Someone in the audience shouted, Heretic! Loudly, but everyone else remained silent as the grave, their eyes uneasily flickering between the bowmen above and the armed Parthians in front of them. Undisturbed, the young heretic continued, Our Lord offers you victory over death, certainty in the face of illness, wealth in the crushing adversity of poverty, and destiny in the cold winds of fate. He reached over and laid a hand on the shoulder of one of the guards. Tell them, Inesh. How did our lord find you? I was dead, the Parthian guard answered loudly. I had a small business in Diadvin. It was small, but it became successful. I had a good eye for the best silks. Another merchant couldn't keep up with me, and his shop fell away. He murdered me in the night, in my own bed, my family all in the house with me. When they found me in the morning, they wept and screamed, but that did nothing. All I saw was darkness. Then there was a light, and out of that light a white lion walked. He rubbed his face against mine, and then gave a mighty roar. I heard it ringing in my ears, and then opened my eyes, alive again, and my wound completely healed. That very morning the lion had come to Diadvin. When he saw me, he called me by name. I have served him ever since. Trinist gave a long whistle, then applauded the story.
Very well told, Nash. Very well told. I've heard it several times now, and it still makes my skin rise. A low murmur was arising among the crowd. There was clear disbelief, sure, but there was also something else. A kind of fear, and even a kind of wonder. Impossible, Vazda whispered, as though to emphasize what everyone in the room was struggling with. Just a story, someone shouted. Trinist nodded thoughtfully, rubbing at his cheek. Yes, that is the problem with stories. I guessed that might be the concern, so I secured a guarantee from my lord that to help in your very warranted disbelief, I might act on his behalf for one person here tonight. So, he slammed a fist into his other open palm with conviction. Let's hear it. Is there anyone here tonight who needs healing, or who knows someone who does? Someone that medicine has completely given up on? I don't want a whooping cough, mind you. I'm looking for the worst. Shocked murmurs of disbelief echoed through the hall, and the land baron, as well as his captains, looked increasingly concerned. No one, Trinist asked loudly, over the rising clamour. No one has a friend or family member, even, who is beyond help. Me! It was a woman's voice that soared out over the crowd and made it go silent again. Bewildered eyes scanned the guests to try and find who, in their right mind, would stand before this heretic and ask for the impossible. The heretic searched the room with squinting eyes. I heard you, but I can't see you, dear. Come on. There's no reason to be afraid or ashamed. You're safe. Who could hold a grudge against someone for trying to save a person, no matter how outlandish the chances? So, come now. Stand up somewhere. Let me see you. A well-dressed woman stood up, bright pearls dangling around her neck, with long brown hair that was woven down her back. She was nearly middle-aged, and was clearly avoiding the gaze of her husband, who was staring at her furiously, cheeks red with shame. He reached up to grab at her, but she swatted his hand away and muttered something angrily beneath her breath. Trinist held his arms out as though he could almost embrace her. There you are, my dear. Now tell me, what is the matter? What miraculous opportunity will you give me? To show the power of my lord. Tears were already streaming freely down her face, as though she knew quietly, that she had already lined herself up for death. It is my daughter. She... The lady broke down sobbing for a moment, then coughed and wiped her face before continuing. She's grown too weak to leave her bed. Every day we must change her gown and her bedding. At least twice. She soils herself. Lyra! The man next to her shouted angrily. She'll die! The woman shouted back, and then kept on. The doctors have come and gone, and now... They won't even visit the house. No amount of money can buy the medicine she needs. All our estates, all our wealth. I trade them all to see her get out of bed. My sweet, my little girl. The playful, wistful manner of Trinist was gone now. He was wrapped in attention, and Vazo thought he saw a single tear streak down one cheek. You may keep your wealth and your estates, you wonderful, loving mother. You have merely asked the wrong doctor. Would you now ask the source of all medicines, he who nods, and one dies, while one lives? Yes, she said immediately. They'll kill you for heresy, her husband shouted, but no one else said a thing. Everyone silently watched. And will you call the lion your lord? Yes, she yelled. Trinist smiled and bowed. When the sun leaves its bed at dawn, I promise... Your daughter will get up from hers as well. 
He turned and scanned everyone with his eyes. For her, the sign will be her daughter's health. For everyone else, I have permission to give one more sign, and it will be your only sign. So heed it well. A blood-red star, a blood-star cross. When it comes, know that the lion's time has come. Tonight, you will have an omen. Heed it, or suffer the coming penance. With that, he turned and raised his hands. Take us. The guards rushed Trinist and his company, but no one lifted a weapon against them. The Parthians dropped their scimitars, and the men in the rafters threw down their bows, so that they crashed against the floor. The guards of Ashgarden drove them to their knees and bound them in tight ropes around the wrists. No one else spoke a word, not even Trinist. Without any noise or resistance, they were all secured and led through a nearby door and out of the feast hall. Sir Alden escorted Lord Aen Thoto out as well, with a train of guards and through a different door. Everyone else, unsure of what to do, either returned to dinner or excused themselves. The woman who had spoken up, and her husband, were arguing loudly in a corner of the room. Dinner and a show, Vazdo said, before tearing into a leg of roasted duck. Normally, this would cost an electrum shill. I feel tonight was worth a silver shill at least, Cory said. Amir looked between them. What will happen to him? Cory was the first to answer. He's a heretic. He lied to get in here, and who knows what other crimes were necessary to get him all the way to the dining hall. Most likely, Lord Thoder will send for a confessor from Belmaris. It will take a few days for one to arrive, and after a so-called trial, Trinist will be executed for heresy. Why would he give himself up like that, then? She asked. Heretics are a strange bunch, Vazdo answered. He probably believes he'll magically be saved. Just like he believes that lady's daughter will magically be saved. You worried about him? Cory raised an eyebrow. I don't know, Amir admitted. I've never seen a heretic before. I guess... I don't know. I guess they looked like liars. Like they knew they were cheating everyone or something. I always imagined it was like when a merchant tries to cheat you out of a deal. He just looked so sure. So certain. I'm not sure I've ever been so sure of anything. That's the nature of fanatic belief, Vazlo said. I see it sometimes in duels. Young people, mostly, who think they have a kind of destiny about them. They believe in themselves so much that they don't seem to think actual swordplay is a very important thing for winning a duel. They expect faith and destiny to outweigh it. It never does. Either way, I do think I've lost my appetite for the night, Cory admitted. He stood from the table and offered a small bow to both Vazlo and Armia. I hope to see you both tomorrow, though I have some early business in Cellar Square. I should go too, Armia said. She stood quickly gave a short curtsy to Vaslo and Cory, and then left before the merchant had even taken a step. Amia, Vaslo tried, but she disappeared into the crowd of people who were trying to squeeze their way out. She's avoiding having a talk with you, Cory reckoned. Needs to be had all the same, Vaslo said. I'll hunt her down tomorrow. And I wish you luck with the hunt, Vaslo Stepman, unexpected grandpa. He chuckled, then turned and left as well. By the time Voslo finished his duck, he was practically the only person left in the dining hall. He put down his plate, washed his hands in a bowl of water, 
and made his way through the straight corridors that led to his room. What folly is all of this? he wondered, and not without some sadness. Trinist had not seemed a bad man, for his fanaticism. He was young, younger even than Cory by the looks of it, and had clearly been swept up into something he didn't fully understand. Vosler wondered if he knew he would be executed, and only after violent torture, once the confessors arrived. The master duelist occupied his mind with how he might talk to Amir, and afterwards, what, if anything, they might do about all of it. It was hardly as though Vaslo could just kill Sir Alden and be done with it. It would be her little words against his large ones, her visible youth against his obvious age, and her small station against his protected one. Everyone respected Vaslo well enough, sure, so long as he kept himself out of anything important. That would not be so once he accused the Marshal of the Guard of foul play and, possibly, attempted rape. Without realizing how far he had walked, the duelist found himself back in his room. He was wearing borrowed linens made of some fine blue fabric, but to him, they were less comfortable than old, worn leather. He let himself into bed for the night, and drifted to sleep, arguing with Amir in his head. Hours passed asleep, when suddenly, Vaslo sat straight up in bed, his face dripping with sweat, his breath coming hard. There was no telling what time it was, whether it was very late or very early. Impossible. It's impossible. He just got on my head is all. It's impossible. The master duelist got out of bed, his bones shaking. I just need some air. By the proofs, that shook me. I just need some air is all. He didn't even put on his shoes. He just walked out the door of his room barefoot, his blue tunic still unbuttoned and the curly hairs of his chest poking out. The cold stone of the hallway felt reassuring, and taking a deep breath, he leaned against the wall and tried to collect himself. Roslow. He heard Cory's weak voice, and saw him standing a few doors down, the door to his own room still wide open. No, you couldn't have. Though he was hard to make out clearly in the dim torchlight, even from their distance apart, Vaslo could tell the merchant was white as the grave. The master duelist swallowed hard, and dared to ask the question. Did you have a dream? A dream about a lion, and a red star? Cory didn't say anything. He leaned back against the wall of the hallway and slowly slid down it, until he was sitting on the floor. He wrapped his arms around his knees and said nothing. But in saying nothing, Vaslo knew his answer.